a severe word from the Lord. Amen? May God write it on our hearts. We may not sin against Him. Albadiah was not recovering from the flu, I'm certain of it, when he gave this oracle. But I am as I preach it. <laughs> so I appreciate the prayers for uh, me. As Blake just prayed, I know many of you, I texted a few of you even this morning asking for prayer. We can still understand this passage regardless. Uh, God has given it to us, and it's for us. It's for the church. An American philosopher uh, says this of God, quote, although we can know what he has taught us about himself, we can never comprehend him completely because he is greater than our minds. Anything God wills, he can do. He not only holds supreme power, but he also uses it. End quote. Our commitment to preach the full counsel of God's word at Redemption Baptist Church leaves us studying and proclaiming the truth of Obadiah 1 through 9 this morning, a text where the supreme power of Yahweh is in fact used. The supreme power of God is used. The question I've wrestled with the most in preparing this sermon is how does an ant teach for 45 minutes about the effects of an atomic bomb? Think about that. Think of how an ant experiences the blast of an atomic bomb. The answer is he doesn't because it's already destroyed him. But if somehow the ant was to be preserved through the blast, then the mystery of his position would be nothing for him but humility and grace. Truthfully, I don't have a good answer about this text besides humility. I need to tell you that if you gain humility to study this text with me, that in itself it will be borrowed from the absolute goodness of God. Everything in our lives is borrowed and loaned to us because God has created everything and we are to steward everything we have. Well, this morning we come together, and like that philosopher said, we believe God holds supreme power. Amen? Amen. Well, in this passage, he is using it, which is a bit of a rarity, actually, at least revealed here in Scripture. We aren't ready for that. We aren't ready for God to use his judgment and his wrath and his power. No one's ready for that. But we must be made ready. You see, as creatures, we are made, then unmade, and then God makes us again. This is what we believe as Christians. Clay in the potter's hand, right? What clay says to the potter to do this or that. To receive the message of judgment against the nation of Edom from God this morning, you must be humble. I must be humble. And when you think you are laid low and you are humble, it is not enough in this passage. For even in our greatest displays of humility, this passage will challenge us to remember that pride's sleek veneer is always at the helm. Today's sermon is God's message to the proud. God's message to the proud. God's truth this morning seeks to accomplish really three things relating to pride in our text. One, purge the peaks of pride. In this text, God wants to purge the peaks of pride. Secondly, to plunder the power of pride. Plunder the power of pride. To the point of, the third point, to preserve the purest pride. 
to preserve the purest pride. You could say our sermon today and our three points that I just gave you in one sentence, and I'll say this sentence over and over again, and I hope it'd be like a summary to you, uh, maybe with all these Ps, you know, a, a, a memorizing device to remember the message to Edom here in verses one through nine. But here it is. God purges the peaks of pride by plundering the power of pride to preserve the purest pride, his own, his own. The sentence again, God purges the peaks of pride by plundering the power of pride to preserve the purest pride that is, comma, his own. So let's study the first part of this in the text to purge the peaks of pride. In order to do that, we actually need to go to one. I know our text starts at two today, but let's go to one again. Let's get some context. I know I did a lot of that last week. I won't do a lot this morning, but I do want to do some. At least a page worth here. It's helpful. Obadiah is a message given through the prophet Obadiah to the people of Edom. It's a message given to the people of Edom for their great pride and their great wickedness. Please excuse my cough. We don't know a thing about Obadiah, if you remember, beyond what is written here. We know he's a servant of Yahweh. Yahweh is... Right there, uh, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord. You see that? The Lord God. And then again, uh, we have heard a report from the Lord there in verse 1. Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the God who is. God who is. Okay, the great I am. God defines himself by saying he is. What do you mean, God? You are what? He is. (laughs) He is God, right? And this is the authority And what we know about Obadiah, he is a servant of Yahweh. God has chosen Israel. Remember that, student of the Bible. A nation that God has chosen. Born as a nation under a list of patriarchs. And that just means men of promise. Promise keeping men, but really promise failing. But men who were promised by God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be what? To be a chosen people. A nation um, of people, and at this time, and 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 when this message comes to Edom uh, through the prophet Obadiah, the people of God are exiled, and what that means is is that an enemy, a super powerful nation, enemy of Babylon, likely have destroyed their main capital city, Jerusalem, the city of God, have up, uprooted their way of worshiping Yahweh, and have carried them off. If you look at verse 11 of Obadiah, you see the stranger that is mentioned. It's likely Babylon. It's likely the 500s. And, and these strangers have carried the people of God away. However, this oracle is not talking to the children of Israel. It is talking for them to the Edomites. The Edomites. Now, who in the world are they? If you remember, Edom is a nation at the time of this prophecy that is nestled in the high mountains of southeastern Judah, right? They are a tiny, proud nation of people that God has a message for, this message. We study part one of that message to proud Edom this morning together. That's your context. And if you remember from last week what is said about this text, it's meant for them, Edom, (coughs) excuse me, It's meant for their their future, and it's even meant for the future's future as well. Why? Well, because this is a prophecy. 
Remember, Obadiah is primarily a prophetic oracle, not a historical marker. Now, that is frustrating to anyone who reads it and wants to actually believe it. Let me explain. Were this book just a historical reference to the people of the Edomites at 500 BC, then you could just dismiss it as the reader today. You could conclude wrongly that you could conclude this. It is true of God and them, but not of God and of all who are prideful. And that'd be a mistaken thought to think of this book as something God has said that only applies to history then. No, its very nature as a prophecy, as an oracle of God, demands you consider the past and the future. Now, something we mentioned but didn't point out last week is the personal nature of this letter. Edom is referred to as a nation twice in this verse, in these 21 verses. And it's actually in our text today. Did you hear it? Verse 1, thus says concerning Edom, right? And if we keep looking down, destroy the wise men of Edom. You see that? Verse 8. Now, that's twice. But six times, they're going to not just be called Edom, but they're going to be referred to in the personal idea of being the brother of Jacob, that is Esau. So a whole people are going to be referred to as a certain person in the history of Israel, Esau, six times. So six times compared to the two times. Why? Well, to show the reader, to show me and you, to show future readers, to show us that God's truth applied to sinful pride like Esau's is universal. This is huge. That means that prophecy like this is ahistorical. All of history can find a message in its message. So God has spoken. Right? Remember, he's the one who's always from, is current, and will always be. What he has spoken into time and existence will pass away, all of it, yet his word will last forever. And so prophecy here, this is a context you must see because this is where we can begin to purge the peaks of pride, which is this first point. So that was one page of context. Now you know how long it takes to get through one page of my notes. Verse one, look at it again. Purging the pride. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Now, who is this messenger? Obadiah and those who will partner with him to receive the words of God concerning the proud. Do you realize that in verse one, before we get into two there, God is speaking about nations. We don't think this way naturally. God calling nations or in control of nations. I want to ask you this morning, do you have a category for this? Do you understand that God controls the hearts of a king like rivers in the hands of a person? Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Obadiah declares to Israel, Edom, and all the nations. The equivalent today is for you and all to hear. 
So whether you believe or you do not believe this morning, let it be known, this is God's word. God is addressing the nations in verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. Hear the inclusion there? You shall be utterly despised. God declares that they will be small when they are already, as we've pointed out, a small nation. Why? The idea is, is that they interact with themselves in the opposite way. They think they are large, powerful, and looming. The deception of their pride is that they think they are bigger than they actually are. God declares that they are to be utterly despised. A better translation of this is that they are already utterly despised. There in verse 2, you know, it is a future promise, which is why your ESV and other, uh, you know, trustworthy translations render it that way. But the Hebrew is, is actually certainty. It's like not future, you know, predicate. It's, it's, it's certain here, <clears throat> which is God saying you are despised. Like you are already utterly despised in that thought. Now, why? Look at verse three. Look at the heart of the thought of pride. The pride of your heart, it says, has deceived you. That's how pride works. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and your lofty dwelling, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Look at that last question. You see the quotes? God is quoting them. They ask that question. Edom asked themselves the question, and they ask it loud and proud in the gym for everybody else to hear, right? Who's going to out, out bench me? Who's the strongest one here? <laughs> who will bring me down to the ground? Who can tame me? Who can stop me? And God asked them that. Let's break this down. First, this is a physical reality that the people of Edom are experiencing at this time. They dwelled in these verses here when it says, you know, they, they're in their lofty fortresses. They actually were. So the city of Edom is, or excuse me, the nation of Edom is cities that have strategically uh, fortified themselves up in the tops of mountains and hills. So when you go to the Dead Sea and then you go south and you go a little bit east, you will find these mountains, 3,000 uh, feet, some of their peaks, big, big mountains. And we know that if you look down in verse 9, the reference to the mighty men of Taman, you see that? The city of Taman is the mightiest city of Edom at this time. And it was nestled in an impregnable fortress of a mountain. And you got to understand, in that day, it wasn't like today. You couldn't just call in a bomb strike and raid, you know, uh, from the heavens down bombs onto this mighty fortress. The only people that would be able to subdue even such a tiny nation as fortified as Edom would have to go with a lot of strength up the narrow passages to their gates while Edom possesses the, 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 the advantage of being above them and is just pelting them with arrows and, and anything that they need to destroy. So they are actually up. And in that day, uh, you need to understand, the message here is, is that Edom has trusted in the pride of their heart, God says, in that same way. Their physical reality that they are a nation nestled up high is, God says, like their heart. Their heart is like that, and they think it is giving them something that it's not. Do you believe this morning that pride is like that? Step one in identifying pride is often just understanding it. Pride sets you up for failure, sets you up for failure. Pride has a vertical element in it. Pride wants to elevate 
a view of yourself up to and beyond a view of God and of God and of his view of yourself. Pride uh, demands you think of people as being beneath you. A biblical theology of pride will help us at this point in the sermon. A brief one, admitted, but, but one that helps. Edom isn't the first one to ask the question, who will bring me down to the ground? According to the prophetic message of Isaiah, a contemporary to, to Obadiah, Isaiah was speaking to the king of Babylon when he said in Isaiah 14, what I'm about to read with you, read to you. So you're taking notes, Isaiah 14. But in Isaiah 14, he's speaking to the king of Babylon. And he's also speaking about the future. <clears throat> What's crazy there is he's also speaking about the past. And I don't just mean distant past in Isaiah's day. I mean from the beginning of time. I mean in the courts of heaven. I mean when an angel named Lucifer, Satan, was the one who propped himself up first in pride. Listen to Isaiah 14. Isaiah prophesies and says back, about back then, quote, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. These were the words of Satan recorded for us in Isaiah 14 before a host, one third of the hosts of heaven Demons were cast down and were humbled by God's judgment. And yet here we go. This is pride in its inception. You follow that lie of pride into the garden. What happens in Genesis 3 when our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve, say in their hearts, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's happening in the garden when a tree above Adam and Eve is residing over them, reminding them <coughs> that their place is under the Creator? There it stands. It stands as an object lesson to remind them they are beneath one who has created them and benevolently created them. God has given them everything that they need. But what is at the heart of the eye that lifts its gaze from the ground, the good ground that God has given as a good gift, and looks to that tree and forgets the warning in it, but says in their heart, did God really say that I will die? No, he knows I will become like him. What is happening in that vertical ascent in the garden? The same thing that happened in the hosts of heavens that Isaiah has recorded, that Moses recorded in Genesis. You get it, hopefully. The wisdom of the scriptures confirm this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride raises us to unbelievable heights. But Paul's there, beloved. This is the warning. Because that is so true. It is unbelievable. It is untenable. Unable to be believed because it isn't true. Pride raises the mind and heart of man into an illusion and into a mirage. Building life on a trap door in worship of the created thing rather than the creator. 
Look what God says to their prideful question. Verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Wow. Declares the Lord. God declares something that he never has to say. God could never have said this, and it would still be absolutely true. But he has said it. So how do we take it? Look, Calvin in in the Institutes of Christian Religion writes this, quote, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him, God, to scrutinize himself. Are you willing to scrutinize yourself? For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. Pride is innate in all of us like that. It takes clear proofs. And Calvin would conclude and say things like, you know, these clear proofs stand and they have to convince, we, and we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, our foulness, our folly, and our impurity. Moreover, once we are convinced, if we look merely not to ourselves, but also to the Lord, He becomes the standard by which we can understand judgment. All that to say this, God is the sole standard. And in, and in Obadiah here, he's the sole snatcher. So he's not just warning about it, he's doing it. You will meet this fate. He will reap their nests. He will rent from their high places the eggs and the life and the children, and the people that they are raising in this incessant pride. God says, you count yourself among the stars. With one mighty swipe of my hand, I'll tear one third of the stars of heaven from, from, in my, from in my presence and cast them into judgment forever. You see how pride is dealt with. Application from this first point. If you're here today and prideful, be warned. Be warned with Edom. How can you know if you're prideful? Consider the things God has said he hates. God hates prideful eyes, haughty eyes. God hates a lying tongue. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates hearts that devise wicked plans. God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. God hates a false witness or a lying tongue that breathes out lies. God hates one who sows discord among brothers. These are seven things. Six things that God hates. Seven like them. <clears throat> That's Hebrew poetry found uh, you know, in the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. In the weeks to come, we're going to see Edom did this and more. They were the body of this. Their eyes were that. Their tongue was that. Their hands were that. Their heart was that. They were whole bodily an example of the things God hates. Here's where it's hard for you and me. You, me, and every, every person on this world are eaglets of Edom. We are eaglets of Edom. Apart from God's grace, we brood on these things. We survive by these, these things God hates. Our feeding and making ourselves strong, trying to muster the ability to fly higher than everyone else. When we see these things and then we see God, I hope we see how utterly cut off we actually are. It should sober us. 
It should scare us. It should make us quick to do anything but face God's wrath if this is us. Our pride in the face of God takes us from the highest mountain to the lowest place of judgment instantly, or it should. It should. Thus, right here in these first five verses, God has revealed very clearly against Edom how he purges the peaks of man's pride. What effect then should this have on the perishing man? <clears throat> I like how G.B. cared, a congregational minister. He was also a professor at Oxford. He explains uh, the way that uh, the, the, the book of Revelation deals with thoughts like Edom. Okay? And this is probably what you're feeling right now. Quote, modern readers are apt to be shocked at the idea that God should be prepared to kill off large numbers of men in order to provide an object lesson for those who survive. That probably bothers you. It bothers me as I try to prepare this. Because God is dealing with Jacob, who he loves, and Esau, who he hates. And the, the direct judgment of Esau is in view here. Those who persist in pride and unbelief. And so it's shocking. But Caird continues, John in Revelation, and I would say, you know, this is also a right understanding of Obadiah since death is in view. John gives a realistic fact about death. He says this, quote, about, about John in, in Revelation, all men must die, and the question mark which death, which death sets them over their existence is just as great whether they die late or soon, whether they die alone or in company whether they, they die violently or in their beds. The ultimate destiny, their ultimate destiny, is not determined either by the moment or by the manner of their death. It's determined by the opening of the heavenly books and by the true and just judgments which proceed from the great white throne, end quote. What does God's ability to purge pride do? It makes us quick to see that we are nothing apart from him. It makes us open and vulnerable to the reality that apart from his mercy, we are ruined. I would be remiss to not share that mercy right now. You know, our chief hope is that God has determined to write our names in the Lamb's book. If you're a Christian here today, to look to Jesus who does, who does love wicked and, and destroyed people, to be humbled, to, to, to believe is to have your wings clipped to begin to find a place under his actual mighty wings. And that's our hope. But hear me out. That is not the hope of prideful Edom. The peak of their pride is purged, point one. Point two, though, the plunder of the power of pride. Look at verses five through seven. Now, remember our sermon in a sentence. God purges the peaks of pride by plundering the power of pride um, Blake, we turn the air conditioner on. Thanks, man. Uh, by plundering the power of pride to preserve the purest pride, his own. Now, how does God say he will go about plundering the power of pride in Edom? I want you to see this. In verses 5 through 6, he uses one irony, and then in verse 7, he uses a second. So there's two ironies you need to look at here. Okay, two distinct ironies that he uses to explain. Look at verse 5. <coughs> If thieves came to you, God says, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Okay, now listen, Edom was a thief. 
We're going to learn next week that while their own brothers, the Israelites, were being conquered, they were taking advantage of that by stealing from them as well. It's just downright shameful, right? God uses the idea of them being thieves who understand thieving to show them the fullness of their fall to pride. This is the irony here. Okay, you need to see this. You know, every thief knows that when you break into a house, you cannot take everything, right? It's not possible, right? You got to get in and get out. You cannot take, you take as many expensive things as you can, but you cannot take everything. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, you know the vulnerability and the fear that comes with having your things taken, right? But you also know on the opposite side of knowing how, how that feels to have things taken, if you didn't lose your life in, in the event that happened, you hopefully have peace. Why? Because you know you didn't lose everything, right? A person whose house is partially consumed by a fire, they may be really devastated by what they've lost, but they're really thankful for what they haven't lost, right? And they grab what they have and they say, thanks, you know, thanks be to God. You know the peace of not losing everything in the house, or you know the peace of not losing your life at least. In other words, there's a strange peace in a thief not being able to take it all from you. Even if you lose everything, you have it, right? <coughs> Here's what I want you to get. Well, God says that he'll take that from Edom as well. That's how total the judgment is. You want to know what God thinks about pride? There will not even be peace in what they don't lose because they will lose everything. That's God's point here. That's total. God makes the same point with a different analogy. Grape gathering. Okay, when the vine was full in that day, that meant that the field was ready to be harvested, whether it was a grape or whether it was wheat. There were always some grapes that couldn't be picked, right? I mean, if you have a certain time in the sun up to sun down and you've got so much time to get all that stuff off of the, the vine, you're going to get the biggest and the plumpest and you're going to take them and you're going to store them, right? And then a lot of it's going to be left over. Matter of fact, this was such a concept that when you study the law of Deuteronomy, you begin to realize God actually creates a, a welfare system. Remember when we studied Ruth together as a church? And in that welfare system, God provides for the poor and the beggar and those who are humble. And what does he do? He says, you're not allowed, Israel, to take everything. You have to leave some gleanings. That way my poor, who I love and are close to my heart, those who are humble, they can come and they can have and, and eat and survive as well, right? So not only is this concept understood, but God even institutes it and says, this is, this is how I work to love the humble. But God says that what the humble know as even receiving leftovers, and that being enough, Edom will not even have that. The pride will get none. Their destruction is total. Do you see the severity of this message? If you don't, note this about this first irony. You know, he's using these two images, but it's one truth about this, this ironic, oh, you thieves and gatherers. But look what happens in verse 5. You need to feel the weight of this especially when you begin to think about lost people, you need to feel the weight of this. God, inter God interrupts himself. Did you notice that? Look at verse five again. <clears throat> I tried to get into commentaries. Let me see if I can read it the way it would maybe read. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? 
coming quickly, swiftly into the middle of the irony is the absolutely shocking judgment from God. Skip the, skip the illustrations. Right here, you need to know you're going to be destroyed. It's over. The severity here is serious. His judgment explodes out of him. Now listen, God is not disagreeing with his nature here. Okay, this is not an issue of impassibility, which is like a theological no-no. Don't make God do something that he can't do or contradict himself. That's not what's happening here. God is not overwhelmed in this moment. He is overwhelming. Does that make sense? Do you see that? God is not overwhelmed. He is overwhelming. He's saying, look how severe his judgment explodes out of him. Is this a promise or a reality? It's both. Verse 6 is the conclusion of this first irony. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Prideful people, unbelieving people, hold up in their heart treasures that they think will deliver them. And they put all their hope in them. And then God shows up how they have been destroyed, how they've been pillaged. God uses the irony of total destruction to show how he will purge Edom by plundering their powerful pride. They put Hope in their military, it won't deliver them. They put hope in their nation, it won't deliver them. They put hope in their skills and craftiness, it won't deliver them. This is the first one. Look at the second irony, though. Look at verse 7. Irony is a fun tool, right? It's a dangerous one, though. And God wills it. Look at verse 7. All your allies, God says, have driven you to your border, all of them. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. The irony here has to do with the perceived allies that Edom has chosen. The friends that they think they have that are their allies are no friends at all. As the reader, you really get to sit in the place of God here. Now, I know those are dangerous words, but you really do as the reader. It's God's intention to empower the reader for a moment, alongside the heights of Edom. <clears throat> Think about it like this. God allows you to be in the peace talks between Edom and Babylon, just for a moment. As Israel was being plundered, Edom sent its best, wisest leaders down from their lofty place to go and welcome and bring in the Babylonians or the whatever leaders were there and to say, we'll make, we'll make trades with you. And you get to sit and deal in the wisdom of the courts. For a moment, you get to see and quickly these peace treaties. And you get to see God show what they really are. Your allies, the peace that you have? No. These allies are driving you into destruction. The peace that you have with them has deceived you. Look at 7 again. They have prevailed against you. They have eaten your bread and set a trap beneath you. These nations, God says, were using them. These nations have deceived them, prevailed against them, eaten their bread without them knowing. And guess what? God is behind it all. God is at work in these other nations to judge prideful Edom. God is clear, isn't he, beloved? He will plunder the pride of Edom with the vengeance of irony. What they thought delivered them will be their demise. Now, before we get all twisted up and we think of God, uh, God's message and God wrongly here, let's apply something crucial. 
This is not vindictive in a human sense. It is vengeful in a God sense. In the commentary, D.A. Carson wrote, the coming of God's reign either demands repentance or brings judgment. That's simple, but let me say that again. The coming of God's reign, it either demands repentance or it brings judgment. God is not vindictive like we are. He is vengeful like we all need. You and I need the vengeance of God. We need the message from Obadiah 2 through 9. We need it like we need the law of God. The prophets and the law, we need them. You need a toothache to save your mouth from cancerous rot. You need the wrath of God to save you from God. What can you be saved from if you're okay? Is there any hope for the reader of this, for the recipient of this, or us today? It is first going to come through rightly understanding the coming reign of God. God will reign. He will judge finally. The earth and everything in it are his to deal with as he sees fit. Now, here's the, here's the whole message already. This spells bad news for anyone who has sinned, and we have all sinned, like Edom in our pride. So the vengeance of God is necessary. It's essential for us to understand God's grace. You got to get that. It demands the repentance or brings judgment. Edom boils it down. I mean, Obadiah boils it down, right? He only needed 21 verses. But it's a very clear message. You either repent or you face judgment. Now, when God begins to purge the peaks of pride and he's plundering the power of pride in our lives, it is like what we've preached so far. It's like applying God's law to your life. You try to live according to God's law, it's sharp, it's clear, you're going to find out it's painful. It's painful because it opposes pride in us. Now, what we need to do is because we're at this point through verse 7 and 8 and 9, there is not a bow of gospel wrapped up in this message. There's not. Like At this point, the, the prophecy continues. Before we continue into the way it preserves God's wrath, which points us to hope, I want to take just a quick side note to really ask you about the vengeance of God. I want to talk to you about it. Because if God begins to purge the peaks of pride, if he's plundering the power of pride in our lives, that's what this text is asking us, to, and we're doing slowly this morning, to understand. Then we got to understand some things about God's law. And to do that, I want to talk to you about Paul. Okay, Paul the Apostle says in Romans 7, if you will let me paraphrase it for you, Paul is dealing with the law, Romans 6, 7, and 8, even back in 5, but certainly right here in Romans 7. And in the book of Romans, he takes a piece of the law. He literally talks about coveting. He takes the point of being a covetous person. And Paul takes that point, and he really shows us what the vengeance, what the vengeance of God, what uh, the law does in pointing us to the judgment of God and the severity of God, he, he does it really well in Romans 7. You can flip there if you want, but you'll remember this passage. Paul is having a conversation. Here's what he says about coveting, though. He, he says to himself, he does the thing that he doesn't want to do. In other words, he covets even though he doesn't want to. And the thing he doesn't want to do, avoiding something like coveting, 
is the thing he does. And it produces in him this turmoil. Let me tell you something about coveting. You covet and I covet. We covet all the time. The, the, the Bible couldn't be any clearer. You shall not covet. Yet we constantly envy wrongly the things that we don't deserve, thinking we deserve them, right? I mean, we always want something that's a little bit better. But here's what happens. We know and naturally we live in covetousness. But then the commandment of God shows up. God says, you shall not covet. And Paul says in Romans 7, if you'll let me paraphrase, that the, the, the law seizing, right, the command, the good thing of law, seizing brought sin to life. In other words, it was like a viper to him. He knew he wasn't supposed to covet. Maybe. But then when God said it clearly, you shall not covet, it was like stepping on a viper and covetousness came alive in him. And he saw in his members what he hated. Because to him, the law was like that. I'll give you an illustration. In John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, there's this famous scene where a little uh, Christian shows up and he's in the house of the interpreter. And he sees all these images. And one of them is this same idea, this viperous law. And what happens is, is he looks in this room, like this room, but it is covered in dust. The dust represents our sin, our love for sin, our pride, like Edom. And in that, it is settled on everything. It has just covered the whole room. And the law of God is given to someone like a broom. And that person begins to do their best. The law of God says, do not covet. So what is happening? He's sweeping. And he's sweeping all the dust. And all that covetousness. And guess what happens? It doesn't go away. It gets stirred up into the air. So much so that the person in the vision, you know what happens? They start choking. They're dying. They cannot breathe. Why? Through the law, through the judgment, God was seizing a hold of what the real issue was. The real issue wasn't all that dust. The real issue was your inability. When you try to do something about it even, to not suffocate and die. Death was already happening. You've been made more aware of it. How? All this, right? If we stopped at that illustration and at that point in Romans 7, we would have up to the point of what we have in Obadiah. The Edomites' pride is that thick layer of dust. And God's truth here, judgment, is, is, is like the law coming to them, saying, don't covet, don't be prideful, no, I will destroy you. And what are they doing? They are choking, choking, and they will, they will die under that choking. That's where we're at. But what happens in Romans 7? Paul says that stirred up pride in him about covetousness, Makes him a wretched man. Romans 7, 24, quote, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know what happens in the Pilgrim's Progress? You know what happens in the House of Interpreter? That room gets clean. You know how? Water. Water is sprayed by a minister. An agent comes in and it, it covers the, the, the room in water. That makes it to where when wiping, sanctification begins to happen in one's life, by the power of God, it is manageable. It can be cleaned up. It can be began to be new. And so in Paul's life, Paul realizes, oh, wretched, prideful man that I am, who will deliver me from this whole body of death? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our application today is don't be like Edom. You need to repent and trust Christ. I know that sounds simple again today. But do not grow weary of a preacher that would call you 
to repent about the pride in your life and look to Jesus. He is the grace. He is the water of life. He is the living water that can be applied. And when he's applied, it is the beginnings of that that can stir up one's heart to be sanctified. Wretched people that we are, get off of our highly lofty abode. Come down to where? To Christ. You come to him and what happens? He transforms you. That's our application. However, the text is clear. Edom will not repent. They have no understanding. Look how that text ended in verse 7. You have no understanding. So God purges the peaks of pride by plundering the power of pride to do what? Last point, to preserve the purest pride. The judgments that have been spoken by Yahweh in the first seven verses are promised. Okay, they're promised. Even though they are often spoken of as being a fact, they are promised. That helps us understand our last two verses. Look at verse 8. Will I not on that day, <coughs> declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? What day does God have in mind? In the immediate context, we know that God has in view the day the Edomites actually meet their fate. So if we study history, we know that after the final destruction of the Jewish system, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Edomites are wiped off the pages historically. We don't know anything about them beyond 70 as a people. They were destroyed. And this prophecy came into fulfillment. They ceased to be a nation then. But is that the only day in view that the reader should understand? The wise men, they get wiped out from Edom in verse 8 there. Is it only about them? Or is it about their wisdom as well? The understanding that is offered from Mount Esau, is it about that mountain, that city, that, that wise city of Taman only? The answer to these questions is no. It's not about that day that has came and went. It's also about the great day of the Lord. There is a final day of judgment coming that preserves the right pride, the pride of God. You see, friends, God is proud, but he's not proud like you and me. He is proud and it is good, for he is good and only good. The moment you and me would try to lower and understand his pride to something like ours, it has become our pride and it has become a curse to you and me. But the pride of God is our hope. I want to ask you to look at verse 9 closely in closing today with me. God says of Edom, your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Do you see the message here? Every man will be cut off. There is a larger loom for every man in the message to the men of Taman. Every woman that is found in the message to the men from Esau, from Mount Esau, okay? The totality of their destruction is the totality of mankind's sin. And that's what's in view. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that sound like? All will be cut off by slaughter. But God. Now, pride promises that this won't happen. 
The, the more prideful one person grows, the more silent God seems to be until he's not. And we need to get this. Do you understand this? Until it is revealed by God and you're born again from heaven, you don't see how slippery the slope is to your own destruction. You don't see it. I don't want to shock anyone. And I'm speaking to my own self. But as a parent, you don't see. And your kid will have to see on their own any slippery destruction that awaits them. And it has to be revealed to them. If you be lost, you don't see until it is revealed to you the destruction that is laid out for those who are prideful and will disobey God. The silence of God, I think, should be feared above everything else. Consider the gravity of God's silent, patient judgment until the great day of judgment. I think the worst thing I read in preparation for today's sermon was this quote. Quote, as water is deepest where it is the stillest, so where God is most silent in threatening and patient in sparing, there he is most inflamed with anger and purpose of revenge. And therefore, the fewer the judgments be that are poured forth upon the wicked in this life, the more are reserved in store for them in the life to come. This is the worst thing that I read. Because it's saying that if God says nothing, you feel no word. He's not speaking. You don't need to worry about him. You can continue in your plan, in your life, doing what you want, nestled in the top, getting whatever you want out of life. And he is a distant third, fourth, fifth back burner issue. God is in the peripheral the more you can think of him that way and understand him that way, the greater is the judgment and the severity being stored up against you. God's silence is to be feared more than anything else. Why? Because he, when he's silent and he's not speaking, he is God. And he's proud. And he will not, he will not be trifled with. He remains holy. He remains just. This text says he remains full of wrath on the day. On the day. Now, this is the worst thing I read. But thankfully, in one sense, it is not our text and it is not our time today. Why do I say that? Because God is speaking here today. People reject, we reject the idea of God being holy and just in the Old Testament because we think it lacks love. But the fact that God was speaking in this season, in this way, is love. This is evidence. Now, is it a hard evidence? Absolutely. Does it, does it explain, and does next week, does it get into the familial level of how God could love Esau, or love Jacob, but hate Esau? Will it do that? Yes. Yes, it will. It will deal to the, to the bone with the ugliest effects of sin. It ruins families. Jesus said that, right? He said, I came not that you, know, you would have peace, but you'd have a sword to set father against mother and, and, and son-in-law against mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and all those things. Why? Because whoever would love father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever would love son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever would love his life more than me 
is not worthy of me. But he who finds his life in this world, they'll lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the message, the gospel, he will find it. Jesus showed up saying, even when God only speaks wrath and judgment, he's still speaking. Are you listening? This is the hope of the conclusion of the horror of God's judgment. There is a conclusion. Now, how God is good and maintains proper judgment to cut off and slaughter all of those that deserve it according to his righteous decrees and election for his own purposes and glory. What that mystery is, is not a delight to us because it's not a delight to God. And so we'll be stayed from that. But what is revealed to us is, is that God is promising to punish Edom. Be not like Edom. Again, God purges the peaks of pride by plundering the power of pride to preserve the purest pride, his own. The mystery of God's goodness in that will will be sought out by us. We will seek it out. But know this, God is good and God is just. And as long as the message, even if it is only of wrath, as this one has only been, even if it is only that message, guess what? It is still a message, which means there is hope. If God is still speaking, there is hope. If God is speaking, there's hope. I hope you believe that. Now, in closing, let's preach the gospel from Obadiah. You know, the text is over, but the phrase will be cut off by slaughter. Do you see that at the end of our text? It should stand out if you've read your whole Bible. God is promising to punish Edom, but how does he preserve? How does he preserve? Well, listen, brother and sister, you remember this, don't you? Can I just tell you again? Uh, someone was cut off by slaughter for us. Listen to Charnock. This guy, this guy named Charnock, he, he studied the attributes of God. This is what he thinks, quote, not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world. So not, not, not those. Nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience. No. Nor... Not the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons. Remember them earlier in the sermon? No. No, not the groans of the damned creatures. None of those things give us such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin. Get this. As the wrath of God let loose upon his son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. When God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which force that terrible cry came from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was humble to the point of death. The pride of God, the joy of God, humbled to the grave. This is the severest mercy. That he should face the wrath of God for you to live. Jesus was cut off by slaughter that you may live in his wounds, in his humility, in his grace. God preserved Jesus in the resurrection. He preserves him now at the right hand of the Father. He will one day return. He has always been. He will always be. If you do nothing from this sermon, do this. Flee to Jesus, not to the hills of pride. 
That's the conclusion we know if we keep reading. There was one that was cut off by slaughter. Jesus Christ. You believe that? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the severe mercy of Obadiah, the judgment of Edom. Lord, we don't want and we're not free to apply it. We don't know. We don't know if the lost people we meet with, uh, if, this is, if this is written of them. We don't know of our own children, if this is written of them. We don't know of our friends that, that don't believe if this is written of them. But we know, God, that as it is written, it is real and it is true. And as we think about its severity, and then we think of them, God, we reflect first upon how we were just like them. We were lost and broken. We were only prideful. We were building our nests in the stars, thinking we were higher than you. And in love for us, God, you, you humbled us. Those of us who, just like them, deserve to be cut off by slaughter, and yet you cut off your own son and slaughtered Jesus in our stead. And so we rejoice this, this morning, God, remembering the gospel together. But not only that, God, we want to be missional with this. Lord, may the weight of God's judgment, may it bear on us as we do think about our children. Not that you delight in the death of the wicked, for this is a lie. You don't. But that instead you have a careful plan for the covenant children of your promises. God, help us to raise up these young ones in that hope. Help us to teach them to not repeat the folly of the Edomites. We are all eaglets of these people, and yet in our unbelief, and yet by faith in Christ, the God-man, you have, or through the law, made sin come alive in our lives. And yet, God, by your grace, you have crucified Christ. We are crucified with him. It is no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives through us. Help us to hold out that hope to our, our children and to believe that while they still breathe air, God, and you are still speaking, that your, your work is not done. As we pray that for the lost people in our lives, God, help us to really have them in mind. And if we don't know them, God, to Lord, find them and to declare to them this judgment. It is loving to tell those that love pride and live for pride that the little bit of destruction they experience now is nothing for the total destruction that awaits. God, help us to preach the gospel better because of judgment like this. Lord, help us to do that as we pray now, as we make our hearts ready for uh, the table, God. Hear our sins uh, that we confess before you, God, after we sing. And Lord, remind us through your wonderful assurances of pardon that though we should be like Edom, we are not because of Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen.